0: Welcome to CCLA's podcast, Justice Versus. I'm your host, Maria Rio. On today's episode, we will be meeting with two incredible activists and discussing the impacts of the 2010 G20 protests in Toronto. A note to listeners, this episode contains descriptions of police violence and sexual assault. The world leaders are still up in Muskoka. Joe Biden's in town. They have a short session of the G8. I want to express uh, my pleasure at having the opportunity to meet uh, once again.
1: The police car on fire was really an ominous scene. We're also here surrounded by about a thousand tactical. Uh,
0: this was without warning, it was completely surreal! If we don't check
1: your bag, you're not coming in. I'm not letting you legally search me. Okay, then you're not coming in. Then you're not coming in. Why, on whose authority? Yeah.
0: On the weekend of June 26, 2010, while the G20 summit debated economic policy at the Metro Convention Centre in downtown Toronto, protests ramped up on the streets. The G20 summit often attracts protests wherever it is held, including from those who are anti-capitalist, pro-labor, or pro-climate action, opposing a system which enables global superpowers to make decisions that will affect the rest of the world behind closed doors. What would become the largest Toronto protest in recent history saw 10,000 protesters met with resistance and conflict from police forces as they tried to make their way to the summit. By the end of the weekend, over a thousand people had been arrested and sent to a now infamous makeshift detention center. For the first time, tear gas had been deployed in the city and reports began to emerge of excessive police force, illegal detention of protesters, and numerous charter rights violations. Ten years later, the G20 protests and the police response are still the subject of scrutiny. To understand the stories of the G20 and G8 protests and their ongoing legacies, we hear from activist and professor Luke Stewart, who was arrested at the protests, and Kara Swivel, who is the director of Fundamental Freedoms Program at CCLA. First, we turn to Kara. Welcome, Kara. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why did this event become so significant in Canada? And why are we still talking about it 10 years later? It's partly
2: because of the scale of it, how many people were arrested. It was the largest mass arrest in Canadian history. And the first time, at least in modern history, that people saw the police interacting with, for the most part, peaceful protesters, and in some cases, bystanders in this way. So I think it was shocking to people to see that police were out with riot gear, that they were using rubber bullets and tear gas, and it was a very unusual thing to see in Canada.
1: You're going to see a large number and a large variety of uniforms. I'm here to tell you today that we may be wearing different uniforms,
0: but we're part of one team. In a presumption that they might be arresting a large number of people in Toronto, The policing services that weekend was an integrated security unit, an ISU made up of Toronto Police, the OPP, Canadian Forces, and police from Peel and York. At its peak, there was a combined 20,000 police or security forces at the protest, policing the actions of 10,000 protesters. Do you think the presence of that large security force changed the dynamics of the protest?
2: It created a situation where police forces that hadn't necessarily worked together before were trying to work together for the first time. There were different police cultures and different ways of communicating. I think it did affect how police were working together or sometimes not together as, as much as they would have liked. In some cases, it was hard for people to know who were the police officers and which force or service did they come from. Were these Toronto Police Service? Were they with one of the other police services that was involved. Some of them didn't have identification visible. But even if their name was visible, you'd have to pay attention to what the uniform looked like and what kind of badge and insignia they had to sort of know which jurisdiction they were coming from. And that's significant because if you want to make a complaint about a police officer, you have to make it to the body that's responsible for that particular jurisdiction. It was also challenging because there was a breakdown of communication between police forces. That's less of a challenge for protesters, but I think that affected how the weekend went.
0: Could you talk a little bit more about the interaction between protesters and police and what really stood out about that interaction? There were days
2: of action planned for Friday, Saturday and Sunday, and um, Saturday I saw some black bloc tactics vandalism, breaking store windows, looting, police cars set on fire. And that was covered very um, heavily by the media. And then I think as a result of those incidents, the police focused more on public safety rather than apprehending the people that were at the root of those incidents. But then as a result, it seemed like the police took the approach that anyone involved in a protest was a suspect. That was followed later that day by a mass arrest at Queen's Park, which is the area that the police had initially told people was the protest zone. That's where you should go to protest. People were arrested there en masse. There was arrests that evening on the Esplanade by the Novotel Hotel, where people were sort of boxed in and then everyone was was wrapped up and arrested and taken to the detention center. And then the following day, protesters were again blocked in or, or what they called kettled at Queen and Spadina and mass arrests took place. And that actually happened when there was a rainstorm happening. So we had people standing in the rain for hours while police processed them and arrested them.
1: Is this curious or we smelling?
2: had been a detention center set up in advance, so the police were anticipating that they might be making a significant number of arrests. But um, I don't think anyone predicted or thought that we would see this situation where police would just decide that everyone in a given area was going to be arrested.
0: So a lot of the allegations against the police revolved around the use of extreme tactics. Can you tell us a little bit more about the tactics that were employed by the police?
2: Yeah, so I mean police interestingly I mean before the summit they had tried to encourage people to protest in a particular area and that was Queens Park which is quite a distance from the convention center so quite a distance from where the world leaders were meeting and for many protesters to have them in an area where they're really invisible to their sort of target audience was was a problem. That became a problem when after the events of Saturday afternoon and some of the the vandalism that took place police tried to clear Queens Park out
1: right in front of provincial legislature of course on the front lawn the south lawn if you know the area and it is a showdown we have
0: riot right. police several th- I've been watching protests in the city for 30 years I've been covering events in the city for 30 years uh, this was not a great day for democracy in Toronto
2: There were issues with communication despite the fact that in some cases police did use these sonic cannons or long range acoustic devices which are sort of these loud speakers to try and warn people to move
0: This is a test of the long-range acoustic device, LRAD, from American Technology Corporation. The LRAD can be used to hail and notify at great distances with locally generated tones or voice messages. The LRAD can be used as a speaker, but also has an alert function which emits that piercing noise, which can be dangerous at certain decibels
2: the lrads are actually something that ccla challenged uh, in advance of the summit we said it was a weapon that required sort of s- specific approvals and protocols the idea is that it's so uncomfortable for people to um, to be there with that loud noise that they disperse and so um, we were successful in in challenging the use of the lrad in in that for that purpose and in that sense but they they did try to make use of it during the weekend to convey messages to protesters and to tell them to disperse. And police did use this tactic of kettling, where um, you essentially block people in so that there's no way for them to exit, really. And then you, you go through and systematically arrest them. Um, and this was a new thing for us here, not something we had seen before. There was also, I mean, all sorts of things that the police did in advance of the summit in terms of, in some cases, covertly infiltrating uh, community groups and protest groups to try to get intelligence about what would be happening during the summit.
0: Did they try to communicate with the public about some of these restrictions before the protests actually began?
2: There was this issue of a designated free speech zone, which is a civil liberties organization we found problematic because it suggests that there are public places where free speech is not permitted and that's just not true. In addition to that, the police also said that they had the power to ask for identification and and potentially search people who were within five meters of the security fence that surrounded the downtown area where the convention center is. They were relying on a regulation that had been passed to a law that's called the Public Works Protection Act. It's technical to get into, but the the reality is that that power to search people within five metres of the fence simply never existed. The police misunderstood that power or decided to miscommunicate what their powers were. It was also a problem because the ministry that was responsible for creating that regulation in the first place didn't communicate with the public about this.
1: Dalton McGinty, having made this regulation on June 2nd for almost a month now has refused to tell the public what the law is and what the consequences of breaching it are.
2: We did training with human rights monitors around what their obligations were if questioned by the police. And in most situations, you don't have an obligation to speak to the police. But this regulation changed that in certain circumstances. So there was a lot of confusing communications in advance. And then during the summit itself, there were lots of things that were caught on video and shared on social media where police officers took you know, a particularly harsh approach.
0: Yeah. <laughs> this is in Canada right now. No, already- wow, <laughs> that's right. There's no civil rights here. Sometimes you gotta be told that.
2: There was a viral video of a protester who was blowing bubbles near a police officer. A
0: of a a police officer. Don't
1: touch me. you going to be arrested for assault. Do you understand me? Bubbles? Yes, that's right. It's a deliberate act on your behalf. I'm going to arrest you. Do you understand me?
2: Those kinds of communications that were obviously not official communications by the police, but that made their way out into the public, it created another negative impression of how the police were operating.
0: We will come back to Kara for more about the G20 and protest rights. But we want to first turn to one of the defendants in the cases that CCLA intervened in, the Stewart versus the Toronto Police Services Board case. Luke Stewart is a teacher, historian, and activist who was unlawfully stopped and searched during the 2010 G20 protests. With CCLA's support, he took the case to court and in April 2020 won his case at the Ontario Court of Appeal after it had been dismissed nearly seven years earlier. Since the event, Luke has participated in discussions on the ongoing legacy of the G20 protests and has become a professor at Francis sianz Polio. Thank you so much for joining us today, Luke.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Your case with CCLA stems from an incident with police outside of a public park. Can you tell us about that incident?
1: The protest at Allen Gardens Park began at about 2.30 in the afternoon. I actually walked to the protest and actually when I arrived at the entrance on the north side of Allen Gardens Park, I saw a line of police officers um, searching People Before they came in, there was actually a large group of people who were being stopped by the police, and the police had formed a line, and I could see they were looking in people's backpacks, and I could see they were actually taking things from people, like um, sticks, which would hold signs, you know, protest signs. I found that highly unacceptable because... You do not have to consent to a search uh, unless you're detained or arrested. And so I tried to avoid the police line and I tried to enter the park at a different area. As I walked to the middle of the park, that's when I was stopped by the police. Make your pick. Are you coming in? We check your bag. If we don't check your bag, you're not coming in. I'm not letting you illegally search me. Okay, then you're not coming in. The then
2: you're not coming in.
1: Why? On whose authority? As far as I was aware, I was going to a public park and. I was going to a protest, and to me, police did not have a right to look in my bag uh, unless I was detained or arrested.
0: So when you refused to show them your bag, did you fear arrest?
1: I had no idea what was going to happen. I was flabbergasted about what was going on because I had never seen this before. I had certainly no prior knowledge that the police were going to be doing this. So I was kind of in a state of disbelief. At that point, I was thinking oh my, I'm alone, and now I'm surrounded by the police. I wasn't necessarily scared I was going to be arrested. I was actually afraid I was going to be assaulted by the police. So part of my strategy was to be very outspoken uh, so that other people might witness what was happening to me. And, you know, I had no idea it was being recorded. There was a lot going through my mind. You know, I was just trying to make sure that I was safe. At one point, I'd turn and, and say, can somebody else, you know, say something to the police? But all I knew at the time was that it seemed like, given the advice we were given, I could just continue on my way. And the police no, had no right to detain me. And so I, I walked through, and uh, the police grabbed me and took my backpack off of me. And then they looked through my bag, and somebody did intervene at that point.
0: Excuse me, is there a reason that you're keeping his goggles? He's
1: not here to swim. my goggles? Yes.
0: Why, why are you keeping my, my
1: goggles? Is it illegal to have goggles? So when you use chemical weapons, I won't be able to protect so myself? it? if you can return it to me right now, because I haven't broken any laws. <laughs> Stop. Give me my goggles back. You're not getting your goggles back. Why? Why? Unless you Why? want to give us your name, we'll give you a property Why do you, you need my name? Because I break so up a law? What law? Can you please tell you? me what law? This is is really crossing the line here. It's not about the fact that they took the swimming goggles. It's about the fact that I was illegitimately detained, and in fact, they were taking something I was going to use for my own personal safety in the case of tear gas. Uh, It wasn't a knife. It wasn't a gun. It wasn't uh, something that could be used as a weapon. It was simply for personal protection. And indeed, reading the police notes later in preparation for the trial, they labeled these as an object which could defeat police tactics. Uh, And every time I I think of that phrase, defeat police tactics, it kind of makes me shiver because I, I just had goggles as a basic measure of protection and they took them.
0: CCLA joined Luke in his court case against the Toronto Police Services Board to argue that his charter rights had been violated. But before this, Luke had filed a complaint with the Office of Independent Police Review Director, not just for this experience, but because he was one of the many detained in the makeshift detention centre. I asked Luke about his experience in the centre. A warning for listeners, some of his memories are graphic
1: hundreds of people were in the makeshift detention center on Eastern Ave, which was actually a film studio, a number of us had decided that we would go to the outside of the detention center and we would just do a regular jail solidarity demonstration. And we were just making a lot of noise, attempting to make sure that the people inside the detention center could hear us and know that people knew what was going on.
2: with our friends live and let them go.
1: Sunday early morning, uh, we were actually kettled and I remember being out front of the detention center and these chartered buses show up with rows and rows of police and riot gear. And we were kettled. And in fact, a group of us were arrested. We were just, you know, sat on the curb and the police had tied the the zip ties. They didn't use handcuffs. They used plastic zip ties so tight that my my hands were turning purple and I couldn't feel my arms anymore. All of your stuff is taken from you, including your shoes. You know, I was interviewed by two police officers We were jammed into these cages, and at that point, we still had the zip ties on. I was in there for maybe about 18 to 20 hours, and I was moved to four different areas throughout that time. There were people singing, there were people smashing on the cages, uh, you know, in outrage about what was going on. Um, There were people, you know, screaming, you know, out of fear. There were people screaming, you know, I want to talk to my lawyer. At first, we were denied access to calling uh, a lawyer. It was only about the hour 16 of my detention uh, that I was able to call the Movement Defense Committee. Throughout this time, you know, I would ask, I want my phone call. Police officers would say things like, oh, you're just pathetic. You don't know what you're talking about. When I was in the third zone, there was this man who was in there who was severely beaten up. And he said he wasn't a protester at all. He told me he just made fun of some police officers, and he was severely beaten up, and he was put in the detention center. And he was all black and blue, like his ribs were really swollen. There was a a Muslim man who came into the, the cell, and he said that uh, he hadn't eaten anything and we demanded that this man um, be fed. There were many complaints by women that they were sexually assaulted by the police, and at some points I could hear the guards saying things like, there's some fresh meat, or I don't know if I can swear, but saying, I want to fuck that. And, you know, there were women who were yelling out uh, for tampons, and there were people crying. You know, this was a horrible experience. So, you know, there was a lot of... Uh, intimidation. There was a lot of fear. Uh, I think this changed uh, a lot of people's lives who were in that position. You know, there were about uh, 1,100 of us in there. And certainly, I will never look at the police the same. I will never look at the, the justice system the same because they built this detention center to fit that many people. And that's how many people they put in there. And uh, it was uh, it was a disgusting experience.
0: The case with CCLA looked at the violation of your freedom of expression, freedom from unlawful search and seizure, and your right not to be arbitrarily detained. The Ontario Superior Court of Justice dismissed your case. Why did you decide to launch the appeal process?
1: It was really important that we finish this as far as we needed to go uh, in order to seek some kind of accountability for what happened. The trial judge, Justice Dietrich, in the decision said, This is a public interest case, and therefore we will not award any costs. So, eight years later, I had lost at Superior Court, and I didn't have to face any expensive legal fees that I would need to pay to the Toronto Police Services Board. The lawyers for the police challenged that cost award or lack of a cost award. And a few weeks later, uh, another decision comes down in which I now have to pay the police $25,000. And that is a scary place to be. And so appealing the decision was uh, an absolute necessity, on almost uh, survival at that point.
0: The case wrapped up in April of 2020, almost 10 years after the actual protests and the court ruled that police had no right to search you. How did you feel when that decision finally came down?
1: I was so relieved. I was so happy that we had finally reached a positive decision. Basically, I was vindicated. The appeals court, Justice Brown, said two things. That the police don't have the statutory authority, meaning they can't use the Trespass to Property Act to make dirt a condition of entry. And they also don't have the common law power in order to do that. You know, that was a significant precedent. This 10 year process I went through, this precedent can hopefully be used to help others in their legal battles with the police uh, facing similar situations, you know. But, you know, it was also a bittersweet decision. The police did score a partial victory here. Justice Brown said in his ruling that because the police acted with good faith in a professional manner, that that helped reduce the damages that I would receive. You know, I only got uh, $500 out of this whole process. The judge also found that, you know, the police were acting in this way in order to de-escalate the situation, whereas I was escalating the situation. This is kind of a dangerous precedent here because the message is being sent to the police that as long as you are calm and acting in a professional way, uh, if you act unlawfully, this will help later on down the line in case the situation goes to trial.
0: Did the police face any repercussions for their actions?
2: As far as I know, there were only two officers that faced um, either a a disciplinary sanction or, in one case, a criminal sanction. One got a 45-day prison sentence, but that was later changed to a suspended sentence and got five days of pay docked. The superintendent who was um, largely, I think, responsible for ordering some of the mass arrests, faced a disciplinary proceeding, got a formal reprimand and lost 30 days of pay. Um, On appeal, that number went up to 60 days, not very significant in terms of ensuring that it was brought home to police how significant some of the rights violations had been. Outside of direct repercussions for individual officers, there were a lot of systemic reviews. And CCLA actually um, held some public hearings to hear from individuals about their experiences. Um, but in terms of you know, repercussions for individual officers, that's not something that was um, very extensive.
0: So did any concrete change come out of these reviews?
2: Uh, certainly in terms of the Public Works Protection Act, that was a concrete change. That statute was repealed and um, replaced with something you know, more modern and much more, um, more protective of rights. So there were some commitments made by some police forces about things that they would and wouldn't do during protests in the future, including some that said that they would not engage in the practice of kettling again. It's hard to know really which of the recommendations will stick. Although we have plenty of protests, we haven't had the kind of international event that we had with the G20 that attracted such a large group of
0: protesters. During the G20, we saw Canadians have some fundamental rights violated. Section 2 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms includes the freedom of peaceful assembly and the freedom of association, both which allow people to organize, to form groups, and to protest. With recent protests and demonstrations in 2020 related to the Black Lives Matter movement, we asked Kara how the G20 shaped the future of protests in Canada. I think that uh,
2: it's certainly affected the way people see the police's role in terms of uh, dealing with protests, and I think you know many people, even who who might have been uh, not not fans of protesters, saw that there was um, a lot of people swept up during the G20 that really were completely peaceful, did nothing unlawful, um, and and really shouldn't have been a subject of any sort of police scrutiny or enforcement. So I think that that, that has shaped the way people view protests. Today and you know, with with many of the protests that we've seen um, dealing with um, with anti Black racism, the Black Lives Matter protests, um, we've we've seen that um, for the most part, despite the fact that arguably those protests are in violation of some of the public health regulations, um, there hasn't been enforcement of those uh, of those regulations because there's, I think, a recognition that. Um, these are fundamental rights that people are out there expressing uh, their views about a very significant issue in society. And um, and police, you know, provided it's being done in a relatively safe way, police, uh, I think, are are giving people the, the space to do that.
0: Luke, what would you assess the G20's legacy on protests has been in Canada?
1: I think there's really two different legacies The first one for me is the utter failure of the institutions of the G8 and the G20 to respond to the crises in which we face in the world today. To me, it seems like these institutions have failed in order to provide the basic needs of their populations. The second legacy is about the necessity for protest. As a historian, I study social movements in order to progress in societies, it's been through... Uh, the actions of ordinary people organizing and agitating for their rights. The legacy of the G8 and G20 is that no matter how much we were told beforehand, don't go to the protests, stay at home. This is one of the things in which we need in a democratic society to challenge the status quo, uh, to challenge um, the institutions uh, which are not solving The major problems of our day. And so the legacy is that it was entirely worth it uh, to do it, that it was essential to go, and it was essential that we continue to struggle uh, for a better future.
0: The right to protest is a constitutional right, and it is the police's duty to facilitate peaceful protests. Shortly after chatting with Kara and Luke, it was announced that after 10 years of intense court proceedings and difficult negotiations, there was a settlement of a class action against the Toronto Police Services that provided financial compensation for those mass arrested and detained. The settlement totaled up to $16.5 million and also includes other important public interest remedies in defense of civil rights. There were many barriers to justice for those who were affected in the G20 protests, but after a decade of advocacy, there has been some justice for those people, and freedom of association and the right to protest were defended and upheld. Before we close, a note of acknowledgement. We wish to acknowledge the land on which CCLA operates. Toronto and CCLA are in the Dish With One Spoon territory. The land I'm reporting on today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is also home to many diverse First Nation, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We're grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. A big thank you to the team of amazing volunteers who put this episode together. We could not have done this without you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to Justice Versus wherever you get your podcasts and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you join us next time as we continue to learn, advocate, and educate on Canada's most crucial human rights issues. Until next time.